scripture reading is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 18. We're going to start with verse 21. And this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. And I encourage each of you to turn to it, whether it's on your device or in the Bible, and read along with me. Matthew 18, um, verse, starting with verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. center. Good morning, brothers and sisters. You'll have to forgive me if I skip the pleasantries and introductory comments this morning. It's hard to move on from those last words that Sandy read and pretend like something else is more important to say. Jesus just told a story Thank you, my friend. (laughs) Jesus just told a story about a man being delivered over to torturers. And then he looked his 12 disciples in the eyes and he said, so also will my heavenly father do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. He's talking to Peter and John, and James, Matthew, the first 
ever Christians. The foundation of the church. And he singles them out so there's no mistaking that he's talking to each and every one of them. Doesn't matter who you are or what you call yourself. If you don't forgive your brother or sister from your heart, unimaginable consequences. My goal when I stand here is to faithfully represent Jesus' heart to our church. And so I direct these words at myself and each one of you, the people on this earth who I love most. Brothers and sisters, so also our Heavenly Father will do to us if we don't forgive one another from the heart. I can't think of anything more important for us to consider today than these words. But before we do, would you join me in prayer? Father, you have put difficult, important words in front of us today, and I pray that you would use your word like a mirror for our hearts today. Not a person in this room doesn't need to pay attention to what we've just looked at and what we're looking at, so I pray that you would not permit a single person to not pay attention to this. But help us, because we're weak and we're blind to our own stuff, So would you shine light in the way that only you can do so that these words will have their intended effect in our hearts today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So before there's a parable, there's a question. Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? This question makes sense in the context of of the conversation that Matthew's just recorded for us through chapter 18, the very last thing Jesus taught on was how to pursue a brother who sins against you. Most of us can probably appreciate Peter pushing for some clarity here as to like what is our what is the full extent of our personal responsibility here, Jesus? Just give me a number. Now it's worth noting that according to Most Jewish rabbis at the time, the standard teaching was you forgive somebody three times. After that, you're off the hook. So you can almost see Peter's self-satisfied expression when he so generously declares his willingness to more than double what's expected. About seven, Jesus. Jesus' reply is usually either translated not seven, but 77, or your Bible might say 70 times seven. And the translation actually isn't that important because Jesus isn't giving Peter an actual number, whether it's 77 or 490. Jesus' point is, love keeps no record of wrongs. You never stop forgiving, Peter. And then the ever-prepared Jesus launches into this parable to further his point. Now, a parable is a story 
that teaches. So we're going to walk back through the parable and try to learn what it teaches. I want to highlight four lessons on forgiveness that I think Jesus wants us to see here. And then we'll close with a few minutes of self-reflection. But first, we're just going to make a quick run back through the parable and make sure we understand the story itself. So let's do that. It kind of happens in three scenes. Scene number one, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, your Bible may have footnotes to explain this to you, or more likely, you are just well-versed in ancient monetary units. But I'll quickly explain that one talent, one talent represents about 20 years of wages for a typical laborer. So 10,000 talents would take about 200,000 years to earn. Again, we could spend more time computing and try to arrive at a U.S. dollar equivalent, but that would also be missing the point. The point is, a talent was the largest unit of currency of the day, and 10,000 was the largest numerical designation of the day. So it's kind of like saying this guy owed infinity dollars. A debt he could never dream of paying. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his, with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Becoming a slave was the equivalent to bankruptcy in ancient cultures. Just sell yourself when you can't pay. Definitely not getting back his 10,000 talents, but the king is at least closing the books. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Notice the king's motive for forgiveness here. It's pity, or it could be translated compassion. And the word actually has internal organs in view. We could say that the king yearned from his bowels, if you can tolerate such language. In other words, this isn't just a mental decision that the king makes to let this guy off. He feels something. He's moved. He's certainly not naive enough to think that the servant could actually pay him back everything, as he promised he would do with just a little more time. But he's deeply moved with compassion. And the king releases the servant of this unpayable debt and sends him on his way. That's scene one. Scene two, verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, you already know this, but a denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. So a hundred denarii is how much he would make in a hundred days of work, not nothing, right? Most of us appreciate a third of our annual paycheck. Not nothing, but a small debt compared to the 10,000 talents that he was just forgiven. Incalculably small. So fresh off his life-changing encounter with mercy, this servant goes and takes his fellow servant by the neck and chokes him out and says, pay me what you owe me. That's messed up. Jesus intends to raise some eyebrows here. 
Verse 29. So his fellow servant, sounds familiar, fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Exact same words that this choker used a few minutes ago before the king minus the unrealistic promise of full payment. Verse 30. But he refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. No mercy. Violent anger. Jesus has just painted a picture that should outrage even the hardest heart. Scene 3. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Other servants of the merciful king understand this kind of thing cannot happen in this kind of kingdom. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, Greek word is torturers, until he should pay all his debt. The servant went from being the object of his king's intestinal compassion as a debtor in over his head to being an object of his king's severe wrath as an unmerciful fellow debtor. He went from released to tortured. Not a happy ending. So Jesus made this story up, but he wants us to learn some real things. So I want to draw out four lessons on forgiveness that are crucial for us to reckon with if we want to take Jesus seriously. So lesson number one, every one of us will be called to account before the king. It's quite a day up here. Every one of us will be called to account before the king. Verse 23 says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. That's not just a great opening line to a story. This is the defining reality of human existence. We were created by God and we are accountable to God. We are not our own. You can be told a million times in a million ways by a million people that you are your own and that you answer to no one and that your truth is as good as anyone else's. You can even believe it, but it doesn't change the facts of actual reality. That this isn't your world and that you are 100% accountable to the one who created you. Listen to a few of the different ways that the Bible says this in the Old and New Testaments. There's Ecclesiastes 12, 14. It says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Hebrews 4, 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, whom, of him to whom we must give account. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. A day of accounting is coming. 
And Jesus, the king, the one who told this parable, will open the books and settle accounts. That day is real, and you will be there, and I will be there. I have a lot of friends that have court dates littered ahead of them, days that they know they're going to have to stand before a judge and give account for their actions of one kind or another. And let me tell you, they think a lot about their court dates because they know that a lot of life depends on how that day goes. Should we not give more attention to our court date that lies most certainly ahead of each one of us, even though we don't know the date? Lesson number one, we are every one of us, every one of us will be accountable before our king. Lesson number two, our debt before God is unpayable. Or maybe to be more accurate, it's payable only by our own death. Infinity dollars, when that's what you owe, the only payment is banishment from the presence of the king. God said this from the beginning, in that the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And that very day, the first people were banished from the presence of the king. As Paul would later write, sold under sin. The wages of sin is death and there's nothing you or I can do to settle the score with God short of death. One of the effects of sin is that we're desensitized to our own sin. Either we're blind to it or we downplay it. Jesus never speaks lightly of sin and he never shies away from talking about a place of torment and judgment that awaits unrepentant sinners, even though those things are hard for us to think about. But one of the things that this parable must do for us is to resensitize us to the fact that our sin is incalculable before a holy God. The debt we owe to God is incalculable. It's unpayable. Jesus isn't just saying there are certain people who owe an unpayable debt. He's inviting us to see ourselves as that servant who couldn't possibly break even even if we had 200,000 years to try. When was the last time you experienced sorrow over your sin, brother or sister? If you consider yourself a Christian, it's not that your sin has gotten categorically less grievous since you were forgiven. The Apostle Paul actually would say the opposite. He would say, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Desensitization to sin is precisely what Jesus has in view in this parable. Isn't this unmerciful servant a man who has astonishingly forgotten how great a debt he was just forgiven? Making little of our own sin is the essential ingredient to making much of someone else's.
When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he on purpose included the daily request, forgive us our sins. Because Jesus apparently thinks that we have a daily need for forgiveness. And Jesus apparently thinks we also have a daily need to remind ourselves that we have a daily need of forgiveness. Can I just invite you back into the habit of daily confession of your sins before the Lord? Not simply in a general, generic way, forgive my sins, but in a way that I think is more in line with what Jesus intended when he taught us how to pray. Forgive me these specific sins, dot, dot, dot. Even if this hasn't been your habit as a Christian, or even if you feel like that's overkill for a Christian, focusing too much on the negative, can I just ask you to consider how a daily confession of specific sins before God might push against the current of our culture and our flesh that wants us to make little of our sins even while at the same time our cancel culture teaches us to make a whole lot of everybody else's. Lesson number two, our debt before God is unpayable. Here's lesson number three, and this is where the news gets really good. Full forgiveness is available even to the worst of sinners. Full forgiveness is available even to the worst of sinners. Jesus means to astound us when he invents a king who would forgive an infinite debt. And yet what's infinitely more astounding than Jesus dreaming up a king like this is the fact that he's telling us that there actually is a king like this. Jesus is doing in this parable what he's almost always doing in his parables, which is showing us what the heart of God is really like. And one of the reasons Jesus is always showing us what the heart of God is really like is because we are always in danger of believing lies about the heart of God. The original lie to the original humans was God is holding out on you. He's withholding good from you. You should go take it yourself because he's not going to give it to you. This is the great, original, and ongoing work of the devil and Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So the thing he talked about most was what the Father's heart is like. And when God introduced himself most clearly in Scripture, to his people, way back in the days of Moses, here's what he said about himself. Exodus 34. He introduces himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is what God wanted his people to know about him from the get-go. That mercy, grace, love, faithfulness, and forgiveness are essential characteristics of his heart. 
When Jesus says that the king in his parable had a gut-level response of compassion toward his servant, he's showing us the heart of God that feels and shows mercy to helpless, guilty sinners. People who have no chance of paying him back. Part of what Jesus is doing in this parable is inviting us to marvel at the undeserved mercy and full forgiveness that flow abundantly from the heart of God. He's not stingy. He's not holding out on us. He's not withholding good that we otherwise deserve. He is astonishingly a God who offers complete forgiveness to even the worst of sinners. What kind of God is that? No one is beyond the reach of forgiveness, according to this parable. The king was willing to forgive an unfathomable debt. And Jesus says, that's what God's like. Somebody needs to hear this today. Regardless of what you've done or how many times you've done it, regardless of what you walked in here feeling burdened under, hoping no one would ever find out, regardless of whatever shame you walked in with this morning and carry with you everywhere, there is more mercy in God than there is sin in you. What could you possibly give to God in exchange for his mercy? The Bible has exactly one answer. A broken and contrite heart. A heart of repentance and sorrow for sin that looks to God and realizes your only hope is that he is wildly merciful. God says, I will accept that heart. The heart that, like King David in Psalm 51, cries, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Not according to who I am, not according to what I've done, not according to how I'm going to make it up to you in the future. My only hope, God, is that you are full of mercy for sinners. If that's the cry of your heart, you can be certain today that there is sufficient mercy for whatever you've done. Full forgiveness is available to those of a broken and contrite heart. Let's not miss the fact that as Jesus tells this story about a king absorbing an infinite payment to forgive a debtor, 
right? That's what he's doing. He's absorbing that payment. He's not making it disappear. As Jesus tells this story about a king who absorbs an infinite payment to forgive a debtor, Jesus knows there's a true story behind this story. Jesus knows this parable is based on actual events. If his disciples were paying better attention, they'd have been able to connect some of the dots of the things Jesus had been telling them. Even twice in the last couple of chapters, we've heard Jesus tell his disciples that he is marching to Jerusalem to die. It would take the disciples a while longer to realize that he was actually beginning to tell them how it is in real life for a king to actually forgive such impossible debts among his servants. It would take them a while to realize he was actually teaching them how this story can be true. The debt is not ignored, it's absorbed. It's paid by the king himself. Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem because he's the king in this parable. He's how debtors are forgiven. He's how sinners are declared righteous. He's how hopeless people find hope. He's the one whose heart overflows with mercy in perfect unity with his heavenly Father. Jesus never told a story he wasn't willing to back up. And Jesus never talked a bigger game than he could actually walk out. If Jesus says... He has the ability to absorb your debt. He does. Sure, the cattle on a thousand hills are his, but no amount of money, no amount of animal sacrifice could actually forgive sinners their sins. Only the sinless Son of God could do that. And he did it by laying down his life as a payment for what we owed for our sin. Listen to how Paul talks about it in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you arrive today feeling the weight of your sin, praise God, Jesus paid for it. His mercy is more. If your hope is in his heart, your sins were nailed to his cross. Debt canceled. That's lesson number three. Let's hit lesson number four, and this is undoubtedly the main lesson Jesus is trying to drive home. Lesson number four is forgiven people, forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. And this one's going to lead us into some self-reflection, I hope. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
This is the point. Those who have received mercy from God will extend mercy to others. Those who do not forgive their brothers and sisters from the heart will not be forgiven by their Heavenly Father. Startlingly clear. We could let ourselves get distracted with questions that Jesus isn't trying to answer here. Like, well, does this mean a person can lose his salvation if he doesn't forgive someone? Or does this just show, show that he was never saved in the first place? But it doesn't seem to me Jesus is too concerned with answering those kinds of questions here, does it? What Jesus is making very clear here is that his kingdom is full of people who have been utterly transformed by the mercy of God. So much so that they find themselves unable and unwilling to withhold mercy and forgiveness from fellow servants who sin against them. Because they themselves know how immeasurable the debt that they've been forgiven. Anyone who withholds forgiveness from a brother or sister will not actually find himself forgiven when he stands before his king, is what Jesus is making plain. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, brothers and sisters. God is not playing around when it comes to things so close to his heart, people so close to his heart. And this isn't a standalone statement for Jesus. Like we could explain it away by saying, well, that just must not be what he meant. This is a point that Jesus made when he taught his disciples how to pray earlier in Matthew, explicitly, when he says, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Or more positively, in the Beatitudes in Matthew, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's a point the Apostle Paul understood, reiterated in places like Colossians 3 when he said, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. James also wrote that judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Forgiving others is not an optional part of the Christian life. It's proof of the Christian life. This last crucial lesson should lead us to some careful self-reflection, I think. It's certainly what Jesus had in mind when he concluded the parable by saying, so also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, mother, father, son, daughter, from your heart. If you are a follower of Jesus, you do not have the option of receiving his forgiveness and refusing to extend it to somebody else. By its very nature, mercy flows. Heart to heart, it's not stagnant. 
Mercy that does not work its way out of you has not found a home in you. Mercy truly received will be mercy truly extended. This is what Jesus makes clear. Anything less than this is just playing silly with Jesus' words. Now, I want to try to make seven quick points of clarification on forgiveness. I admit, at this point in the sermon, that is an audacious thing to do. But I think it's important, and I think I can be quick. Do you trust me? (laughs) I'm not sure what to think of that. Seven quick points of clarification, because I think this is important enough to warrant clarification. Forgiveness is a big deal. Let's scoot quickly. Clarification number one, forgiveness is not about ignoring an offense. The king doesn't simply ignore the debt and move on. He calls the man to account and specifies the debt. This is what you owe me. This is exactly what you owe me. I'm simply not going to make you pay it. Clarification number two. See how fast that was? Forgiveness is not about abandoning justice. We don't turn a blind eye to lawbreakers or allow abusers to carry on with their abuse. Forgiveness does not mean there should be no consequences for people's actions. Forgiveness and pursuing justice are not contradictory. Pursuing justice means I'm trying to make things right. But pursuing justice without forgiveness just means I'm trying to hurt that person for what they did to me. That's called vengeance. God says we can leave that to him. Forgiveness from the heart can exist in a person who is pursuing justice out of a wise and loving concern for the good of himself, herself, and others, and even the perpetrator. Number three, forgiveness is not about minimizing suffering. 10,000 talents versus 100 denarii is a monumental difference, just as sinning against God and sinning against each other is a monumental difference. But that doesn't mean we should minimize the pain, sorrow, and suffering that we can and do inflict on each other, as if it's chump change. It's not. We can do great damage to each other through our selfishness. Some sins are more destructive than others. Some wrongs do permanent damage this side of the grave. Anyone who wants to minimize another person's suffering in the name of forgiveness is not representing the heart of God. Qualification number four. Forgiveness does not require forgetting. Forgive and forget is not a biblical requirement for true forgiveness. When the Bible says that God remembers our sins no more, it doesn't mean that the all-knowing God suddenly forgets something. It just means he treats us like he does. There are things we will never forget that other people did to us, but that doesn't mean we can't really forgive them. Qualification number five, forgiveness is not always a one-time event. Forgiveness does require a decision, but it's a decision that sometimes has to be consciously renewed over and over again. Some wrongs are so destructive and painful that the forgiver may have to make the conscious decision by the power of the Holy Spirit to forgive every day or every time he sees somebody. This doesn't mean it's not true forgiveness. It just means that pain runs deep and we are often weak. 
Qualification number six, forgiveness doesn't have to be felt before it can be granted. Sometimes we make a decision in our hearts to forgive somebody in light of God's mercy, not in light of how we feel. Our feelings can actually be led by our actions. We're discipled by our world to do the exact opposite, let our feelings lead the way, but this is not our only option, nor is it our best one. Forgiveness can be granted before it's felt. And number seven, forgiveness does not require the other person's repentance. This is where author David Paulison makes a distinction between two dimensions of forgiveness. There's attitudinal forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. Attitudinal forgiveness happens in our own hearts before God. We can release a person of their debt and let mercy reign in our hearts even if that person never acknowledges what he did to us. This happens between me and God. Transactional forgiveness, on the other hand, happens when somebody seeks out your forgiveness and you're able to give it and then walk out a reconciled relationship with that person moving forward. This is clearly a desirable outcome, but it's not always a possible outcome for many reasons. But Paulison rightly says, it takes two to reconcile just like it takes two to make a war, but one can forgive, even when the other is still at war. It's called loving your enemy. So attitudinal forgiveness from the heart before the Lord is always available and should not be overlooked in situations where reconciliation is not an option. Seven, done. Brothers and sisters and fellow servants of the king, fellow recipients of abundant mercy and full forgiveness, let me ask you the hard question that we have to ask before we leave. We have to ask on a regular basis. Are you withholding forgiveness from somebody who has sinned against you? Forgiveness from the heart, not merely acting nice. You're actually releasing that person from your heart, from whatever they've done. Will you please silence all the voices that tell you it's very reasonable and right for you to withhold mercy and forgiveness and listen exclusively to Jesus? Don't we already experience a foretaste of God's judgment when we withhold forgiveness from people? Do you know what it feels like to be imprisoned and tortured by your own bitterness and resentment? It's been memorably said to forgive is to set a person free and to find that that person was me. I'm not saying forgiveness is easy. I don't think Jesus is saying that. But I am saying that if I understand the words of Jesus and the teaching of Scripture elsewhere, it's not easy, but it's essential. 
for followers of Jesus? Easy? No. Essential? Yes. Possible? Yes. Before you leave today, there's going to be people standing at the back that want to pray for anyone that wants prayer. And If you find yourself in this place where this is a really, really stuck issue in your heart, or maybe you didn't know it was until this passage hit you in the face, I will encourage you to not leave here before you ask somebody to pray with you. Do not try to wrestle with this by yourself. God gives grace to the humble, and Satan cannot play around when we turn lights on. Talk to somebody. Get prayer before you leave. Forgiven people forgive people. Not because we become invincible or incredibly strong people, but because God's mercy transforms us. It does in us what we could never do in ourselves. And the Spirit of God lives inside forgiven people, making us more and more into the image of the one who describes himself as merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This conversation began with a question about the duration of forgiveness. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive? But then it ends with a statement about the depth of forgiveness called to forgive each other from the heart. But this whole conversation actually began back in verse 1 with a question about who the great ones are in the kingdom. Do you remember? That's when Jesus pulled this little kid over to him and said, this is what greatness looks like in my kingdom. Humble yourselves and become like this little one, and then you'll be great. So let's not disconnect the beginning of this conversation from the end of it. Forgiveness from the heart is a characteristic of little ones in the kingdom of heaven. Who's more forgiving than a child? Children keep no record of wrongs. They aren't self-righteous. They aren't counting other people's sins more significant than their own. Perhaps more than Jesus telling us in this parable what to do and not to do, he's simply describing to us what his kingdom is like. He says, he says, listen up. There's a kingdom where mercy reigns. Where those who have been forgiven much are free and ready to forgive much. There's a kingdom where those who've been forgiven by the king are slowly but surely becoming more and more like their king. There's a kingdom where sin and sorrow and injustice will one day be eradicated entirely, but even now are being overcome little by little by ones who count themselves little, who make much of the mercy of God. There's a kingdom like that, Jesus says. Don't you want to be a part of that? If you're serving the Lord's Supper, please come and uh, you can take your spots. This is always a fitting way for us to finish our time of worship together, taking the Lord's Supper. But in light of this passage that we've looked at together today, we should pay attention to what the Lord's Supper means. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. 
And then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is how a king forgives. So when we take the bread and the cup on Sundays, we are proclaiming that because of our union with Jesus, forgiveness of sins is ours. This is what we proclaim. And by extension, we are also proclaiming when we take the bread and the cup that as forgiven people, we will forgive people. This is what it means to be a Christian according to Jesus. If you're here and you're not following Jesus as your Lord, we're really glad you're here. And I believe these words are for you as well. But what we're going to do right now to close our service actually isn't for you because it's just for people who are walking by faith in Jesus. And that's not to make you feel out of place or ashamed. No one's going to be judging you. We're not better than you. We just are people that have, have discovered that Jesus is our only hope. And so we're following him and receiving from him. If that's not you, though, you can stay in your seat when everyone else gets up. And I just encourage you to spend some time continuing self-reflection and maybe even praying to God in your heart if you're up for it. But the rest of us are going to get up in here in a few minutes and come forward and take the bread and the cup. So brothers and sisters, heavy, important words for us to consider. And as we come, take the bread and the cup, proclaiming that we are recipients of forgiveness. Let's keep in view that we're also proclaiming that we are also extenders of it. So when you're ready, brothers and sisters, those living by faith in Jesus, you may come and take the bread and the cup.